that, that expression that he holds the keys of death. And uh, we're this morning in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse number 8. Revelation 2, verse number 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This, as we've seen, each of these letters is written to one of these seven churches in in Asia Minor. uh, What we know today as modern day Turkey. It's on the western side of Turkey, uh, bordering there the Aegean Sea. Last week we looked at the city of Ephesus. We know that Uh, The Apostle John is writing these from an island in the Aegean Sea, the Isle of Patmos, uh, which is about 60 miles away from Ephesus, a little further away uh, from Smyrna, the the letter that we're looking at this morning. Of course, the whole book of Revelation is a letter written to these churches and to us as a church. Uh, But in in these, what we have is sort of letters within letters. We, We have special notes directed at each of these seven churches and in most of the letters there there are things to commend things to encourage them about in most of the letters there are some ways in which they're falling short of God's standard for them and so these are these are actually letters written from Christ John says that these are the words of Christ to his church and so uh, he's saying hey this is good Uh, you need to be encouraged in this but this is uh, these are some areas where you're not you're not living up to what you ought to be living up to as a church. And so then he encourages them to repent. And each of them, uh, there are special and unique circumstances. And what, I've, what we've seen so far, I, I hope, is that these letters, though they're written to particular churches that, that were in a particular place and had a particular set of circumstances, uh, as we read them, we can read them as letters written to us as a church. And I think each one of these letters will speak to us in a, in a unique way and, and might provide encouragement. This particular letter is a letter written to a church that is a suffering church. It's a, a church that is suffering persecution for the cause of Christ. And really, that's the theme of it. Christ is writing to this church to encourage them to take their eyes off of their current situation And allow their eyes to be lifted up from where they are in that situation to be able to see Christ and have their eyes fixed on Him. And in so doing, they might be encouraged by by a a fresh view of Christ to continue on and to be faithful even in light of persecution. Now, whenever we talk about persecution and suffering, uh, it's hard sort of as a pastor in a church in the West In America, where we have religious freedom and uh, where most of us don't feel uh, that we we get that much persecution or that much suffering. But a couple things I think uh, can help focus this for us. First of all, we need to recognize that sometimes we uh, we define persecution very narrowly in the sense of uh, of government persecution. 
in reality, what we need to see and understand is that anytime you begin to be faithful to the Lord, Satan is going to come against you. He may, in certain situations, in certain places in the world, he may use uh, the, the governmental power to do that. But, but in other places, he doesn't use that. He comes against you in, in various ways. There, there are relationship difficulties. There are sicknesses. There are uh, different problems that we encounter. And, and we can see those if we're walking with the Lord and growing in faithfulness. We can see those as, I think, uh, in a sense, persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ. But beyond that, uh, we see, and I think in our country, an increasing sense of this persecution. It's like, to me, as I look out, I, I think we see, uh, it's kind of like when a storm is brewing up and you see the dark clouds in the sky that, that are coming. You know it's only a matter of time. You know it's headed this way. Uh, you've heard the reports and, and how bad this storm is. And you can see it out there. It isn't yet affecting you, and yet it's coming. And I think for us, uh, it may take a while. Uh, I'm not a doomsdayer, but, but I see mounting uh, criticism of Christians. I, I see us increasingly ostracized from culture. Uh, I see our views and the way that the Bible teaches about certain things increasingly being pushed to the fringes of society. And I think persecution is coming. That doesn't mean uh, that, that all of us in our lifetime are going to be forced into jail or, or to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. But persecution is coming. It comes in various forms. If you keep up with this at all, you'll know of stories like Bar Baronel Stutzman, uh, who's a florist in, in Washington. She's 70 years old. She's a grandma that loves Jesus. And uh, she has uh, been, she's had this family business, this florist shop for years and years and years. And just this week, uh, the, the Supreme Court in Washington State uh, ruled against her because although she's willing to serve anyone and, and to prepare flower arrangements for anyone, when it came down to it, she had a, a, a friend, someone that she considered a friend uh, and someone she had served in the past that that wanted her to make flower arrangements uh, for his wedding. And he happened to be uh, a gay man. And she just, in her conscience, could not allow that. She, she couldn't participate in that. She was willing to serve him on a personal basis, but she felt it was wrong to uh, participate in his wedding. And so she kindly uh, told him no. She was not ugly about it. And it wasn't long until she was dragged into court. She's being sued as a business, but she's also being sued in a personal sense. And there's also legal, uh, other legal ramifications. As I said, the Washington State Supreme Court just ruled against her. Uh, she's going to be facing fines. Uh, if these other lawsuits go through, she may lose everything that she has. And all because she says, I want to be faithful to Scripture and I don't think I can participate in this wedding. I'm not trying to stop you. Uh, I, I'm not trying to do anything. I just, I, there are other florists. I can't participate in this wedding. And now, uh, as I said, a 70-year-old grandmother who loves Jesus and is seeking to be faithful to the cause of Christ and to her faith is, is on the brink of losing everything. Uh, if this uh, decision is not reversed. But as I said before, it isn't just that kind of suffering. Satan comes to us in various different ways, uh, attacking us uh, with, with the things that I, I mentioned before. It comes in different shapes and sizes. But I'll guarantee you this, as a pastor, I see this. If you begin to take seriously your faith, 
You begin to get in the Word. You begin to pray. You begin to become faithful. You begin to give. You begin to, uh, to witness and, and to be evangelistic in the community. If you really sell out for Jesus and begin to live for Him, I will guarantee you this, you will begin to suffer. Uh, it'll come in different ways and in from different angles, but you will suffer. Satan will not allow that to go unopposed. We have people even now in our congregation where I'm seeing that, and you just see it over and over again, that they start to get serious. They start to really move and do things for the Lord, and Satan comes against them. This is what Scripture tells us. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering will come. And suffering has come in the church here at Smyrna, uh, probably much more severe than the suffering that we have, but uh, it, it was suffering nonetheless. Uh, in Smyrna, a few things about this city. Uh, this city that was a, a city that took great civic pride. They, they were very much a, a, a patriotic city. They loved the Roman Empire, and they were they were very much involved with with Roman uh, with with uh, the emperor worship and these pagan temples that would be part of Roman culture, uh, and they were very patriotic. to To live in Smyrna meant that you were a person who loved the Roman Empire. They they prided themselves. That in previous conflicts, they had always sided with the Roman Empire. They had always, when, when there were two options, you know, warring factions, they had always sided with the Roman Empire. In fact, in 190 BC in this city, they had built a temple that was used in the purpose, for the purpose of, of worshiping Rome itself. In a pagan culture where everything is a god, even, even the state was a god for them. This loyalty, this, this patriotism was awarded by the Roman Empire as they were selected. The city of Smyrna was selected among many other cities to be the city where they were allowed to build a temple to the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And there, there were many other cities compete, competing for this, but their, their loyalty to the Roman Empire was so strong that they were chosen above all others. While other cities might have been relaxed, in their patriotism, their worship of the emperor. Smyrna was not that, that way. And that, in fact, would have been really the source of much of their persecution because, as we talked about last week, in, uh, in, in declaring and worshiping the emperor, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians were, those, were people who confessed there's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. We'll confess Him. We'll, we'll obey the emperor. We'll be good citizens. But we won't worship anyone else and we won't confess that anyone else is Lord other than Jesus Christ. Part of the problem here was not only the, this Roman patriotism, but there was a Jewish community uh, who did not care for the Christians. And so the, these Jews were obviously informing and slandering uh, the Christians to the Roman officials. So uh, they, they maybe ha would have been able to kind of keep their opposition to this uh, and their uninvolvement in, in emperor worship. They might have been able to keep that under wraps, but the Jews kept bringing it up. Look at these Christians. They're, they're, not, they're not confessing that Caesar is Lord. They're not participating in the sacrifices to Caesar. And so that's part of the problem here. It's a letter to a church that is suffering and that is struggling and what Christ calls them to do and what He's calling us to do this morning, I think, for those of you who are suffering, He's calling you to take your eyes off of the situation that you're in and begin to look at Jesus Christ. Well, let's do that here this morning. Let's look at Christ. 
and see a few things that should help us as we deal with suffering in our life. First of all, we are to look to Jesus because he transcends our suffering. Look to Jesus because Jesus transcends our suffering. Look at verse number eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He refers to himself as the first and the last. This means that Jesus is eternal. You go back as far as there was, as far as history will take you back all the way back to the book of Genesis in the beginning. And, and we find out from John 1, 1, right? Jesus already was there in the beginning was the word. He was already existing. He's eternal. And long after everything wraps up in this world, in this in this universe, after everything's brought to a conclusion, he's the last. He's the first and the last. He transcends time. Now, I don't think we want to skip over this because as we're, we're saying here that what will help us in suffering is to have a big view of who Jesus is. And what I think we need to recognize is that here Jesus, these are his words, Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is God. Remember in, in Revelation 1.8 where, where God himself said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And now Jesus is here saying the same thing. I'm the first and the last. This is a, a, a title that actually comes from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, where God says that he is the first and the last. He's the one who stands outside of time. Revelation or Isaiah 44, 6. He says this. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And now here Jesus is writing to the church at Smyrna and Jesus is saying, I am the first and I am the last. It's statements like this that have led Christians since the time of the New Testament to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. And if we're going to have a big view of who Jesus is, that's the place that we begin. Jesus is God. That's, that's where we start out with Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the exact imprint. That's why God can say, I'm the first and the last. And now Jesus can say, I'm the first and the last because he's the exact imprint. If God is holy, Jesus is holy. If God is righteous, Jesus is righteous. If God is eternal, Jesus is eternal. He is the first and the last. Do you confess that? Do you believe that in your heart? That's, that's the foundation of the Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. But Jesus isn't telling us here that just that he is God. He's telling us something of what it means to be God. As God, first of all, we see that he's self-existent. I'm the first and I'm the last. In stating this, he's saying I'm before everything else. Nothing came before me. In other words, I don't derive my life from anything. Uh, all of us have, deri have, have derived our life from, from various sources, right? Uh, and, and we're sustained. Our life is sustained by, by, by various things. But, but here Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. My life doesn't derive from anything else. I, I don't get my life from anywhere else. I have life in myself. He's self-existent. He possesses life in himself. He doesn't derive life from anywhere outside of his own being. An implication of this self-existence is that Jesus is transcendent. To be transcendent means that he's above 
and outside of creation. This means that nothing in creation can touch him so as to bring him harm. He's not limited by or negatively affected by anything outside of himself. You know, we're, we're creatures, so we're bound by time and space and by our environment. But Christ is not bound in that way. He's, he's unaffected in that way by anything. Things outside of us control, up, control our decisions and control what we're able to do because we're not self-existent. So we say tomorrow I've got plans to meet with this person and do this and, and go here. And, and next thing you know, you go home tonight, uh, you get a little virus and you're not able to leave the bathroom for two days. We're not able to determine what we're going to do in the ultimate kind of sense because we're not self-existent. But Jesus, as the first and the last, as one who's self-existent, who does not derive his life from anything or anyone else, is able to determine all that he does. He's unaffected by the things that go on in this world. Why is all of that important as we're writing to this church in Smyrna that's suffering? Well, when you're in the middle of suffering... Your world seems to be shaken. Maybe some of you are there this morning and you're going through difficulties. You're going through trials. Satan is at work seeking to, to destroy your faith. And, and you're shaken at the moment. Everything seems to be spinning around. There doesn't seem to be any solid place for you to get your footing. That's what's going on in Smyrna. Perhaps that's what's going on with you. But what you need to do this morning is to lift your eyes up and look to Jesus. To the one who is... Who, who's, who is fixed, to the one who is immovable, to the one who's permanent, to the one who is lasting, to the one who transcends all of these temporary things that we're going through. Jesus, because He is that, He can sustain you in the middle of that. He can be the rock that you stand on when you're in that suffering because He transcends that suffering. He's unaffected by it. He's unharmed. He's unhurt by it. If you seek, uh, uh, you mothers... Some of you, your kids get sick, right? You're, you're trying to take care of them. Next thing you know, you're sick. And uh, us men, I know we, we just check out, right? We're in bed and it's like we're, we're on life support or something when we get sick. But you've got to keep serving. But, but you're, you're unable to serve your children in the way that you might want to because you're affected by it. Jesus isn't affected by the things that you're going through. He's, he's unharmed. He's unhurt. He's transcendent. And so he's able to be the rock. Jesus is not afraid when the enemy attacks, as you might be afraid. Jesus is not rattled by the shifting tides of public opinion. Jesus is not adversely affected by anyone or anything. He's not shaken by the latest Supreme Court ruling. Jesus never has a panic attack. He never gets depressed about the way that society's going. He's in control and he's unmoved. He's unaffected by these things and therefore he can be our rock and our fortress as we're in the middle. He's the first and the last. This is what the psalmist says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Or about Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Some of you right now, perhaps you're going through trials and suffering, and it feels like the earth might give way, but He's a rock. He's our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We can have a firm place to stand 
in the middle of circumstances like that because Jesus is the first and the last. It's as the song says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My anchor holds within the veil on Christ, the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If you're in the middle of suffering this morning, look to Jesus because He transcends your suffering. Secondly, look to Jesus because He knows your suffering. Look at verse number 9. I know your tribulation. It's a few short words. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. This has a couple of important implications, I think. First of all, he knows. You know, sometimes we're in suffering. Sometimes we're being persecuted. Some things, sometimes Satan's coming against us. And, and the, the difficulty in it is that you feel that nobody knows. Nobody cares about what you're going through. It's just you and you're all alone. But Jesus speaks to you here this morning. He says, I know your tribulation. He cares about what you're going through. One of the great comforts in suffering is knowing that it has not gone unnoticed. And Jesus, the one who walks in the midst of the churches, says, I see your suffering. I know what you're going through. If you're here this morning and you're undergoing an assault from Satan, if you're experiencing a trial or being persecuted, take heart. Even though no one else seems to know or care, Jesus knows and he cares deeply about you. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he cares for me. But this also, I think, has more just an implication that Jesus knows about what we're going through. When he says, I know, this is an experiential kind of knowledge. Jesus knows what you're going through because he's been through it before. Notice what he says here. This is one of maybe the most paradoxical statements in all of Scripture back in verse 8. I'm the first and the last, this transcendent one who is above and, and outside of creation, unaffected. But then notice what he says here. The one who died... And came to life. You see, Jesus entered into creation. Even though He was outside of it, He entered into creation. He took on humanity and He suffered the things that we suffer. The the relational difficulties, the loss of loved ones, the trials that we go through. And ultimately, He even laid down His life on the cross. He knows what you're going through. So as as you're in your suffering and you think nobody knows, nobody cares, Jesus knows and He knows it in an experiential way. He's been there before. This is why the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been tried in just the ways that you've been tried. Maybe not the exact specifics, but he's been through the kinds of trials that you have been through. He says, I know your tribulation. If you're in the middle of suffering, look to Jesus because he can sympathize with you. He knows your suffering. Thirdly, this morning, look to Jesus because he clarifies our suffering. He clarifies our suffering. Look again at verse nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, if you're being tried, if you're being tested, if you're being persecuted, one of the great difficulties uh, is sort of losing perspective. 
And, and Jesus speaks to two different ways in which they might be tempted to do that. Notice, first of all, that Jesus defines true riches. He says, I know your poverty. And there's several words in the Greek for poverty. Uh, there are some that just speak of sort of a general kind of poverty. You have some things, but you're on the lower end of the scale of the socioeconomic scale. Uh, but, but then there, there is extreme poverty. There, there are people who have nothing. And this is the word. For that, this is the word for extreme poverty. It's likely that this tribulation that they're going through is related to the fact that they're so poor. Maybe they've been fine. Maybe they've had their possessions as they did in Hebrews. Uh, their possessions have been taken uh, as, as a punishment for their unwillingness to say that Caesar is Lord. We don't know the details, but what we do know is that these people were extremely poor. But notice what he says here. I know your poverty, and yet you are rich. Jesus clarifies reality for us, doesn't he? Uh, what way can they say, be said to, to be rich if they're extremely poor? Well, they have what is truly valuable. They have what is truly lasting. They are rich because God has lavished his love on them. And he's providing them with eternal salvation. I read this this week in a commentary, a great illustration. I thought I'd use it this morning. Uh, the, the person wrote and he said, just imagine uh, that you're getting on the Titanic and people are boarding the Titanic. And of course, many wealthy people are going on there. They've got their furs and their jewels and they've got the nice posh cabins and they're they're going on to the Titanic and they they look so rich and so wealthy by worldly standards. And then he said, now imagine that there's, that there's a poor man with tattered clothes. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. And those are, those are tattered and, and, and terrible looking. He, he's going to be staying uh, not in one of the nice cabins. He's going to be staying in the belly of the ship. He, he's got nothing uh, to speak of. But, but he does bring on to the Titanic one thing. And that is a life raft. And then ask yourself now, who is truly rich? Who has, who has the thing that is of true value? What will all those possessions do for people on, on board the Titanic? All the money and the gold and the jewelry, all those things. It will mean nothing as the ship is sinking into the depths of the ocean. The man who has the life raft, raft is the one who's truly rich. That's what Jesus is saying here. Church, I know, I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. I know part of that means that you are in extreme poverty. But you are rich because you have what is truly lasting. You have eternal life. You have the love of God. So Jesus redefines riches for them. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews can say this. He said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property... Here again, a church that's being persecuted and having fined and being fined and having their things taken away from them. And he said, you joyfully accepted it when they plundered your prof property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You had something that was better. You had something that's going to last for all eternity. Do you know that this morning? Do, do you have that sense of, uh, of reality? That, that view of reality on the world? These things, the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the houses that we have, the boats that we have, all of this stuff, it's not going to last. What, what is truly going to last is, is salvation and life, eternal life that, that comes through Jesus Christ. Do you have that perspective? 
This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Christian, this morning, if you have eternal life, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have everything. Don't value this world. Don't value material things. Value that. And when you do, when you take your eyes off of these things and you begin to fix them on Jesus Christ, you will see that he clarifies reality. He clarifies our suffering. He he defines riches, but he also determines rightness. He determines rightness. You know, when we're being persecuted and we're suffering for the cause of Christ, one of the difficult things is that our views get twisted, don't they? You, you watch the news and they talk about Christians. Evangelical Christians believe this and do this and polls say this. And you know, that's not what true Christianity is. That's, they're misrepresenting. They're, they're twisting our views. Your views get misrepresented. Your actions get maligned. It's, it's easy even to begin to question yourself and to question the church. Your motives are called into question. Everything you've ever said is scrutinized and twisted to make you look as if what they're saying about you is true. That's what he says here that, that these, were, these people were doing. He says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews. They're claiming that they're God's people. I know the slander that they're saying, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. You know, it's doubtful, I think, it's doubtful if any Christian has ever been persecuted solely for actually believing in Jesus Christ, for that being the sole reason. It's always, it always comes with some misrepresentation. It always comes with some false accusation along with it. Uh, nobody ever just gets persecuted just for confessing that Jesus is Lord. Uh, think back even to Christ Himself. Right? They, they, they claim, look, he, they brought false charges against Him. Right? He said He was going to destroy the temple. And, and all of these things. And, and they brought false accusers. And that's the way it goes. It's gone throughout time. There's always false accusations. Our, our views always get misrepresented. Our words always get twisted. You know, if you believe that, well, then you're just a bigot. And you're full of hatred. And you want to say, no, no. We love all people. We, we care for all people. But you, you get, your words get twisted. And your beliefs get misrepresented. Well, if you stand against that, then you don't care about women in vulnerable situations. No, no, we do. We, we desperately do. What about children after they're born? You're, you're so concerned about the right to life and taking care of unborn children, but you don't, you don't care about them after they're born. Yes, we do. But you see the words and our beliefs get twisted. You Christians are just hypocrites. You stand against this, but then you do that. And that's what's going on here. These these people who claim to be God's people are taking the views of Christians and they're twisting them. They're, they're slandering the Christians and that's the cause of the persecution. We need to be reminded of what the psalmist said in Psalm 109. Be not silent, O God, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. But Jesus says, look, I, I know. I know their slander. The world may be fooled. Uh, you can turn on the news and be fooled about what Christians are really like and what Christians really believe. But Jesus says, I see it. And I know the truth. 
and that's the only, you can take all kinds of opinion polls uh, and, and ask all kinds of questions. That's the only opinion that matters. He's the judge of the universe. And one day we're all going to stand before Him. Everything will be unfolded. Things will be seen as they really are. And He says, I know the slander. Christians, don't get so worked up. Don't get so worked up when, when your views are being misrepresented and when Christianity is being twisted to make, make it look like it's something that it's not. Don't, don't get worked up. Don't get entangled in that because there's one person that matters and He says, I know. And, and I see it. And so we can rest in the middle of our persecution, in the middle of our suffering. Look to Jesus because He knows. Look to Jesus also because He controls your suffering. Look at verse number 10. Now the last half of it. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Jesus can tell them what's about to happen because He controls what is about to happen. Notice, Jesus, although He's sovereignly in control of it, He's not responsible for it. He says that Satan is the one that's going to do this. Satan is the agency who's responsible for this. And yet Jesus sits over top of that. He's the king who rules over even what Satan does. If Satan does something, it's because Christ has allowed him to do so. Jesus is in control even of what Satan is allowed to do. Notice here that Jesus has set a limit to our suffering. He says for 10 days. Now the book of Revelation is a book full of symbolic numbers. And uh, 10 doesn't necessarily have any special uh, significance throughout the Bible as some other numbers do. This may be a literal 10 days that they're going to be in jail for 10 days. Or this 10 days may represent a short period of time. Uh, if it's symbolic, I think that's what it's pointing to. It's just going to be for a short time, for 10 days. It will be difficult, but I've set a limit to it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is in control. He can only go as far as God allows him to go. Have you ever read the book of Job? Have you ever read the book of Job? And Satan comes against Job, but everything that Job does is measured out by the Lord. And Satan cannot go any further than what the Lord allows him to do. Christian, this morning, no trial that you go through is outside of the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sovereignly in control, even of our suffering. He's not responsible for it. Satan is the one that works these things, but he's in control of it. Jesus has a purpose for your suffering. Look again at verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. So that you may be tested. Satan's going to do this, but do you think that's Satan's intention? Is it Satan's purpose to test and to try your faith? No, I think that's God's purpose. I think that's the purpose of Christ for His people uh, to try their faith. Satan's purpose for us isn't to test our faith, to, to allow it to be proven. It's to destroy our faith. Peter says, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan doesn't come to test and try your faith. He comes to destroy it. This is the purpose of God. God allows us to enter into suffering. He allows Satan at times to attack us so that our faith, faith might be tested and tried. So that it might be strengthened and shown to be real. And that's what's happening to the church 
in Smyrna. The testing of our faith, the Bible teaches, is for the purpose of purifying and strengthening our faith. First uh, Peter 5 says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the purpose of God in our suffering. And isn't it interesting? I, I mentioned before the way that these letters are, are laid out. Almost every letter has some sin that the church has to deal with. But the church of Smyrna, no negatives are listed. There's no sins that are listed. He doesn't say, get this right and repent or else I'll come and remove the candlestick. Why is it that this is one of the, the few churches that no sin is mentioned? And I think it's because it's a suffering church. You see, suffering has a way of purifying our faith. Suffering has a way of driving away those who are false professors. False professors don't want to suffer for the cause of Christ. And so it drives that away. It purifies. It strengthens our faith. That's why James can say in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now that's just crazy. Count it as joy when you go through trials. Why would we do that, James? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It strengthens our faith. And so we ought to rejoice. We ought to be glad when we go through suffering. We're not glad for the suffering, but we're glad for what it does to our faith. It, it drives us to Christ. It drives us to our knees in prayer. It, it drives us to call out to the Lord and to rest in Him. The testing of your faith produces steadfast and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. This church was a church that was mature because they had been through the fires of suffering. Satan is bringing suffering to destroy your faith like a lion seeking whom he may destroy. But God is above all that. And he's saying, no, watch what I'm going to do. Satan, you're coming against them to destroy their faith, to, to cause them to run away from me and to deny me. But watch what's going to happen. These people, their faith is going to be strengthened, just like Job. And, and they're going to come out of this suffering that I'm going to allow you to bring in their life for 10 days, for a short, set amount of time. And they're going to be even stronger. Their faith will be stronger. Look to Jesus finally this morning. Look to Jesus in the middle of your suffering because He promises deliverance from suffering. He promises deliverance from suffering. Look at verse 11 or verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Hey, church, suffering's coming. He was writing this to the church of Smyrna, but I would say this to you too. Suffering's coming. If, if you're faithful and following the Lord, there's no doubt about it. All who desire to live a godly life in this, in this age will suffer persecution. You're going to suffer at one time or another. So, so get ready for it. Suffering is coming. But if you endure that suffering, you will receive the crown of life. He promises to bring deliverance from this suffering. This crown, there are two words for, for crown. One is a royal crown, a diadem that a, a king would wear. Uh, but this is, this is not that word. This is another word for the wreath. Uh, you know, the, the leaves that, that they would win or that they would wear in the Olympics, right? The, the winner of the, the race would get this crown that's a wreath. And that's what, that's what this word is. 
It's the victor's crown. The the one who completes the race. The one who finishes. The one who's victorious will receive the crown of life. And that's the promise here. You see what's tempting for us, right? As Christians is just to give in. You know, if we just compromise, if if we just step away from this a little bit, if we back down a little bit, uh, then things will get easier for us. Uh, but, But here Jesus says, no, stay faithful. Keep going. Stay strong. Because in that, if you remain faithful to the end, you will receive the crown of life. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Jesus promises in Matthew 24 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. We believe that Jesus Christ saves us. And if you're saved, you're truly saved. You're forever saved. We believe that. But we also believe part of what that means is that you will persevere. If your faith is a real faith, you'll keep believing all the way till the end. And that's what Jesus calls us to this morning. Perhaps for some of you this morning, the the temptation is becoming stronger as as suffering just begins to mount. And and perhaps even the promises of eternal life and the promises of of a crown of life for those who persevere is beginning to fade for you. But notice there's also there's sort of a negative side here. Uh, In verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see, if you as as one who professes faith in Christ decide that it's just going to be easier if I just abandon all of this and I'll alleviate this suffering. You see what he's saying here is that there's a greater suffering that's coming. There is a second death. Uh, You you can be faithful to death, but Jesus says here, there's a second death. This is a spiritual death. This is eternal punishment on all those who do not know the Lord. The second death in Revelation 21.7 is defined. It says this, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Don't abandon your faith in an attempt to to alleviate your suffering and to get out of the suffering now. Don't don't abandon your faith because Jesus says that the one who's faithful to the end, the second death will have no power on them. By, By maintaining that faithfulness and finishing all the way to the finish line, it says here that the second death will not hurt you. I'm reminded of the story of Polycarp, and I'll close with this. Polycarp was actually the pastor of this church in Smyrna. After the apostolic time, he's the early church. Uh, he was a pastor in Smyrna. He was arrested uh, for his faith in Jesus Christ, and he was being threatened with his life. At one point, one of the first things they do is just simply try to get you to renounce uh, your faith that, that Jesus is Lord and, and confess that Caesar is Lord. And so they're, they're sort of trying to get him to renounce this so they don't have to uh, take him to the stake to burn him alive. And this is what one of the people said to him. He said he, he was encouraging him to uh, to deny his faith. And this is what uh, Polycarp said. He says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. 
But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Polycarp had read this letter that Christ wrote to the church at Smyrna. He knew about the second death. He knew about the lake of fire and he believed it. You see, Polycarp had a big view of Jesus. He believed his words to be true. He, he believed that what Jesus promised, that he would have eternal life and that he wouldn't be hurt by the second death if he remained faithful. He believed it so much so that he says, bring on the fire. Bring it on. Your fire will last only for an hour, but there's a coming judgment that will last for all eternity. I hope that's the kind of view of Christ that we have. Here's the reality. If you have a small view of Jesus and who He is and and His promises, you will not endure suffering. You'll get rid of it. You'll, You'll deny the faith. You'll walk away because it'll be easier. The people who are faithful Till the end, the people who persevere even through persecution and suffering are people who have a big view of who Jesus Christ is. Do you have that view this morning? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we.